Um, yeah, good morning, everyone. Good morning. So glad to see all of you here this beautiful morning. Thank you, Emily, for sharing such a good word over us. I was just struck by what she said, that maybe the week has gone by so fast you didn't even recognize God's provision. That's how I feel this week. I don't know if you all feel that way. But um, that's how I've definitely been feeling. So thank you for that, Emily. Um, we have been going through a series in the book of Nehemiah over the past three weeks. We're in this series, and we're calling it Rebuild. Why did we decide to do this series this, in the book of Nehemiah and call it Rebuild? I think there's one simple answer we can all agree with, and it's 2020, right? Like, everyone agrees with that. 2020 is enough of a reason to need a series called Rebuild. But I have been feeling something, I don't know if anyone else here has been feeling it, that 2021 has actually been a lot harder for me than 2020. Has anyone else been feeling that? Just this kind of heaviness, this kind of weight? Well, I have a theory for it, and I'm calling it the emotional aftershock of 2020, right? Like we all went through this collective thing together that no one had ever experienced, a global shutdown. Like the whole world shut down. Who thought that that would ever happen? None of us had never experienced anything like that. And we all just went into go mode. We're like, okay, this is our life now. We're on a global shutdown. Like adrenaline kicked in. We went fight or flight for like a whole year. And now we're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. And we're all like, why am I feeling so emotional about the light? And it's because we're seeing this rubble that was left over from 2020. This emotional aftershock rubble that we're now trying to dig ourselves out of, that we're trying to climb out of. And we need a rebuild. But what do we want to rebuild towards? That's the question I've been asking myself. Like, in this season, we have this pile of rubble here. We're like, we're going to reconstruct something from this. But what? I think for me, something I realized coming out of 2020 is there was actually a lot of stuff before 2020 happened, before everything was brought back to its basics, that I already needed to start rebuilding, right? Like, there were some habits, some things in our lives that were revealed in the breakdown of 2020 that we were like, oh, I already didn't like that. And now we have a chance to figure out how to rebuild the life that we have always dreamed of living. So that's why we're in Nehemiah. That's why we're going through this rebuild series. And I'm going to walk through a really quick little recap of where we've been the past three weeks just to catch anybody up who hasn't been here. So we've been going through the story of Nehemiah, who he was, what he was called to do, and how he did it. And Nehemiah had to rebuild because the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed by Babylon. In the siege of Babylon, the city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Oh, we're switching mics. Oh, I know. Okay, so I was telling Brian this this morning that boys have it so easy. Like, they just, like, it. Brian was watching me. I struggled for like 10 minutes to put this mic on because of my hair. And then I had a necklace on. It's just like Douglas over here, he doesn't have any hair. He just like throws it on, right? It's not fair. I'm, I'm trying to take it out and it's getting worse. So we're just going to leave the other mic on. We're going to go two mics this morning. Double up on the mics. Double mic. Um, but we've been looking at Nehemiah and the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed by the siege of Babylon. And this man named Ezra was given permission, Ezra is the book in the Bible before Nehemiah, to go and rebuild the temple. So Ezra rebuilt the temple, and then about 20 years later, Nehemiah, he was he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia, so he is living in Susa. And Nehemiah has a relative come and visit him, and the relative is telling him, like, hey, man, like, things in Jerusalem are still, like, real bad. Like, things are not good. The city is not good. People are not thriving. And Nehemiah was heartbroken over this. 
he did not know that the city was still living in such disgrace. So he took his heartbreak to the Lord and he started praying and asking God what he should do about his heartbreak over the city of Jerusalem. And God said, well, you should go. Go and rebuild the walls. You do it. And Douglas talked a couple weeks ago about why walls are important and how walls help a community to thrive. And God was speaking over Nehemiah that the community is not thriving because the walls need to be rebuilt and you need to go and do it. So Nehemiah went into work that day and he was really sad. And you, you know those days where you're just like really emotional and you can't even hide it from anybody? And the scripture literally says that the king saw Nehemiah and had never seen him sad before. So that tells me like either Nehemiah was like a super like happy, chill guy or he was like super professional, right? Like the king had never seen his face looked like this. So the king goes, what's up? Why are you so sad? And Nehemiah said, I'm heartbroken over the condition of Jerusalem and I wanna do something for my people. I wanna go and I wanna rebuild the wall. And not only did the king give him permission to go and rebuild the wall, he sent him with authority to go rebuild the wall. He gave him these letters of provision and permission to leaders to go and rebuild the wall. He even sent the royal cavalry with him. So Nehemiah left, he left Susa, with permission, with a calling from God, permission from the king, and authority to start building. And then he played, he prayed, and he planned, and he prepared. Ben's been talking about that the past couple weeks. And he started rebuilding. And then, bam, chapter four, which is where we are today. Something happens. Opposition comes to the rebuilding. Now, I have a question for you all. Who here has ever played with a one-year-old before? Yeah, yeah, nice, raise your hands. I have a 15-month-old. My husband's walking her around back there right now. And keep your hands raised, keep your hands raised. If you have ever played with a one-year-old with these guys. Yeah? Who knows what these are? Stacking cups, that's right, they're stacking cups. So when you play with a one-year-old, who wants to tell me, what's your purpose for playing with a one-year-old? Like, why do you do it? For fun, that's right. You want them to have fun. You want the little one-year-old you're playing with to have a good time, right? So you're playing with this one-year-old. You're like stacking these cups, right? Like one by one for them. You're doing all this work. And maybe you only get like about halfway up and they come out of nowhere and bam, they knock your cups over. And you're trying to play it cool, right? Like with our one-year-old, we're like, yay, like boom, you did it. You knocked the cups over. Like, I wasn't building those for you or anything. It's fine. Like, you like your feelings are a little hurt, but they can't be because it's a one-year-old and you're not supposed to have your feelings hurt by a one-year-old, right? Chapter four is kind of the same, right? Like Nehemiah was called by God. He was given permission and provision by the king to go. He had everything he needed. He had prayer. He had a plan. He had preparation. He was building the wall. And then, bam. Chapter four, sorry, worship team, I'll clean those up later. But chapter four comes and opposition comes to the rebuilding. So we're gonna read through chapter four together today. And I'm going to make six points. Yes, you heard that right, six. I have a little secret for y'all I'm gonna let you guys in on that I may or maybe like not supposed to tell you, but this is my first Sunday ever preaching. Yes, ever, ever in my life. I've taught here and there, but I've never preached before which means that I have the luxury of pretending like I don't know what the rules are, right? Like, I don't know what the preaching rules are. Like, I can make six points if I want to. Like, y'all are probably like, Allie, six points, that's a lot. Like, normally in a sermon, we make like three, maybe four. Like, my journal doesn't have enough room for that. Like, not six points. And I get to say, I don't know what the rules are. I can do what I want. And maybe I'll break a few more, few more rules. Maybe Douglas and Ben will never let me preach again. But we'll find out. We're going to do it together. But 
The other reason I want to share a whole six points with you from the book of Nehemiah in chapter four is because I think this is a really important topic for us to dig into at the end of the year that we have had. I think we can all agree that this year was full of opposition. Like, you know those TV shows or movies where they have like the really intense narrator that's talking, right? Like over the scene. Like just take yourself back really quick with me to March 1st, 2020. You're hanging out with your friends and you're like, I can't wait to go on summer vacation. And the narrator comes and he's like, but little did she know she would never go on summer vacation, right? Like that is 2020. Or like who has a word for the year? Who does that? Who makes a word? I do like to start the year off. Like let's imagine that we're like, and in 2020, my word for the year is going to be growth. And then the narrator comes over and he's like, but little did she know her word for the year would be opposition, right? Like that's what we're all working with coming out of 2020. Opposition was thick in 2020. Am I right? Like let's recap the year together. We started out just kind of grieving with a couple of different countries. Australia had some wildfires going on. China was dealing with COVID-19 and we were like, oh, blessings be to them, you know, like, like that will never happen here. Like we will never have to go through that, but we're gonna pray for China, hope they get through it. Like, good luck, you know? And then Megan and Harry left the royal family. And we, at the time we were like really upset about it. Now Oprah's kind of shown us like, it might've been for the best, you know? Like she's kind of like, <laughs> like redeemed that for us. But like at the time it was really sad, right? And then murder hornets. Like, none of us even knew about those before 2020. These giant bugs that could kill us came to the U.S. And then we all collectively mourned some deaths together, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and Chadwick Boseman, just to name a few. And then we watched as COVID-19 swept across the globe until it came here, bringing with it shutdown, sickness, and fear. And then we mourned with our black brothers and sisters. And then we mourned with our Asian brothers and sisters. We experienced anxiety, depression, loneliness, isolation, despair, and even death for some of us. I think we can all agree that after 2020, what we really need is a rebuild. And the incredible thing is that chapter four starts with the word opposition. It starts setting up for us what we need to learn from 2020, right? We experienced a lot of opposition, but chapter four continues to say opposition to the rebuilding. So while we need help dealing with the opposition that we faced in 2020, what we really need is to know how we're gonna deal with the opposition when we start rebuilding. This is why I have six points for you today, because the enemy does not want us to rebuild. The enemy does not want us to learn from this past year and become stronger for it. The enemy wants us to sit in opposition and defeat. And you know what the enemy really wants us to do? To go back to life as usual, like nothing ever happened. And to not rebuild anything from the rubble that we are digging through from 2020. So let's read Nehemiah chapter four together. We're gonna start in verse one. When Sam Ballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? 
Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Now, we all remember who Sam Ballot is, right? Ben was talking about him the past couple weeks. He was the governor of Samaria, and he didn't want anything to change. He didn't want Nehemiah to rebuild the wall because he was benefiting from the opposition that was coming against the Jewish people. Which brings me to my first point. I know you all thought I'd never get there. First point, there will always be opposition against the dream. Why? Firstly, because it's promised to us. Hardship is promised to us. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus is explicitly telling us that this world is full of hardship and not that we might experience it, but that we will experience it. And secondly, because the enemy, just like Sam Ballot, benefits from you failing. The enemy benefits from opposition coming against you. Ben has been talking the past couple weeks about how each and every one of you are called with a holy calling to bring healing and transformation to the world. The enemy, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy wants the opposite of what God is trying to do through you. So the enemy benefits from you failing. And this opposition is going to come against our kingdom dreams. And it might slow them down or even stop them. But what we really have to watch out for is the opposition coming against us who we are, our identity. Not what God called us to do, but who he called us to be. Which brings me to my second point from verse two. You have to know the lies. You have to know the lies that the enemy is speaking over you. Sam Ballot, bully that he is, comes in with a sarcastic approach in verse two. And I'm a pretty sarcastic person. I have a really dry sense of humor. So when I read the questions that Sam Ballot asks, I'm like, oh, goodness. Like those are some, that's some sarcasm. Let me read it for you again. He says, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Like, y'all y'all can't do this. Like, y'all, mm, like some pathetic Jews, like y'all are not equipped to build this wall. Then he says, will they offer sacrifices? Like, is God going to do it for them? Like, if they burn a goat, like, is it going to, is the wall just going to re be rebuilt on its own? Is God who he says he is? Is he going to rebuild this wall for you? Will they ever finish it? Like, this is a really big job. Like, look at this city. Look at this wall. Like, y'all can't do this. Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mountains of rubble? Now, this one is extra harsh because what, what Sambal is saying here is, hey, remember, this was already destroyed, like, by your enemy. Like, these walls didn't crumble on their own. They're burnt from being destroyed. Like, why do you think you can rebuild them? So if we were to take Sam Ballot's questions here and just put them into some one-sentence phrases, they would sound something like this. You are not enough. God is not enough. Your calling, it's too big. And the enemy has already taken this from you. And you cannot rebuild anything from what the enemy has already destroyed. We have to know the lies. We have to know the lies that the enemy is speaking over us because if we don't, we'll start to just believe it's truth. What if the Israelites start to believe that? They're like, wow, like Sam Ballot's right. I can't, I'm not a builder. Like I can't rebuild a wall. And like, can we trust God? How do we know that God is who he says he is? Did God even call Nehemiah to do this? And this is, this is a really big wall. Like we're trying to rebuild a really big wall. Like I don't know if we can do it. And yeah, this was already destroyed. What's the point of even trying to rebuild it when it's been destroyed before? If we're not careful and if we don't know the lies, we will let those lies become the truth that we speak over ourselves. But what was the truth in Nehemiah's life? He was called by God. 
He was given authority by the king. He was given provision from the king to go and live out his kingdom calling. And that's true of everyone here. You've been given a calling. You've been given authority. You are meant to go and live the dream that God has for you. So what does Nehemiah do after all of this is being spoken over him? These lies, they're being opposed. He goes and he prays. But he doesn't just pray like this nice prayer. He prays a prayer against his enemies. So verse 4 and 5. Listen, our God, this is Nehemiah praying, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. And I feel like when we read this in our New Testament, like post-Jesus context, like it kind of rubs us the wrong way a little bit. We're like, Nehemiah, like you can't pray that. Like you can't pray like for your enemy to be cursed the way that you've been cursed or for them to be taken captive the way that you've been captive. Like you're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to like love your enemies and like hope that they are loved into the kingdom, right? But something that's so cool about what the Old Testament followers of God do is this. It's this lost art that we've forgotten how to do, which is lament. We've forgotten how to take our grief and struggles to the Lord and just be brutally honest. So my third point is we must rebuild our lives on the foundation of lament. We must rebuild our lives on the foundation of lament. Here in verses 4 and 5, we see Nehemiah bringing his most real and raw self before the Father. He's saying, God, I'm mad. We are in despair. Our enemies are coming against us. Do something about it. Hurt them the way we have been hurt. Like, that's a real and raw prayer. And I think that we have lost this art of lament. And that 2021 is the year that we need to bring it back we've all lost a lot in 2020 right like there were a lot of things that we missed out on a lot of things that we lost we lost graduations weddings special events family vacation just connection somebody told me that like it was really hard for them losing sports and i didn't understand because i'm not a sports person but they explained to me that there's like this connection and camaraderie that comes with it that they were losing that they like were missing out on something right we all we lost time with family we lost celebration so many things so the question we have now as we are rebuilding is how do we redeem these things? How do we get back the things that the enemy took from us in this last year? The answer is obvious, right? We celebrate bigger now. We work harder now. We do more now. We go on more vacations. We spend more time with family. And we go and we go and we go until we've redeemed everything that we lost in 2020, right? And then the enemy gets exactly what he wants. Because we will just go and go until we're overwhelmed and overworked again. And we're trying so hard to heal ourselves that we don't allow the Lord to do the healing work that he needs to do in our lives. So I believe the answer is we have to start with lament. We have to bring our grief before the Lord and sit at his feet and say, Father, I lost a lot this year. I experienced a lot of hurt this year. I'm frustrated, I'm angry, and I need you to do something about it. And then we'll realize that when we bring our lament to the Father, he will do the healing that we were never meant to work harder to achieve. So what happens after Nehemiah laments before the Lord and brings his anger to the Lord? Verse 6 starts with, so we rebuilt the wall. So 
Oftentimes we think that grieving before the Lord, lamenting with the Lord is counterproductive to the work that we need to do. But verse 6 shows us that this lamenting before the Father, allowing him to step into our heart with us and heal, actually allows us to do the work of rebuilding. So it continues. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. The people had the will to keep working. So what happens when opposition comes against us, when the enemy comes? How do we rebuild? Do we rebuild because it's easy? Do we rebuild because there isn't opposition? We've seen that there is. No, we rebuild because we find the will to keep working by stepping into grief with the Father and allowing him to do that healing work inside of us. So let's continue into verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there's so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they won't realize it until we are among them and can kill them and stop the work. So what, do we, what happens here? When, when we start to rebuild the wall, they said they rebuilt the wall to half its height. When we get there, what does the enemy do? Is the enemy like, yeah, like I came, I oppressed you, I spoke some lies over you, but you rebuilt the wall, like up to half its height, good job. Like, you got this, finish rebuilding the wall, go all the way up. No, the enemy comes back harder, which brings me to my fourth point. Oops, sorry. When breakthrough comes, the opposition comes harder. When breakthrough comes, the opposition comes harder. It changed from these sarcastic questions of lies to literally threats of death against the rebuilders of the wall. When we start living out our kingdom calling, we have to be prepared. The opposition is going to come harder. And what do we do with that op opposition? How do we defend against it? Let's finish reading chapter 4 together, starting in verse 12. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and time again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest section of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Oops. Sorry, it's windy. I was warned about this. I was told to bring rocks, but I didn't. Um, with swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. When the enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officials supported all the people of Judah with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone um, and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the members of, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried a weapon, even when washing. So we learn here, this, in this part, the rest of the chapter four is a little bit of that practical stuff that Ben has been talking about the, about the last couple weeks, a practical plan for defense that Nehemiah lays out for us, which brings me to my fifth point. 
Disciples need a plan of defense because the enemy is going to oppress us. Like we keep learning, the enemy is going to oppose us. So we need a plan of defense. This is how Nehemiah teaches us to defend in the rest of chapter four. We need to know where we are vulnerable and protect those places. So Nehemiah says to cover the vulnerable places first. We all know when opposition comes against us, where we're most vulnerable, right? We all have wounds from our past, healing that we've walked through, but things that can still become raw. We have temptations that we know that we're prone to. And so when we know the enemy is opposing us, we have to be ready to guard our vulnerable places. We have to have a plan of defense for where we are the most vulnerable and not let down our guard. We must remember who God is. Remember in the beginning, one of Sam Ballot's questions was, will they offer sacrifices? He was asking them, who are you to say that God will rebuild this wall? He was calling into question who God was in their life. He was saying, you can't trust him. He's not for you. He's not going to help you rebuild this wall. But then Nehemiah says at the end of chapter four to remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and what he's done for us so that we can continue the work. Now, I was going through a hard time a few years ago, and I had somebody ask me, like, do you know what Emmanuel moments are? And I said, I don't, but we know Emmanuel means God with us. And she explained to me that Emmanuel moments are moments that you store up in your heart to remember what God has done for you. You remember, you can say, I know with certainty that God was with me in this moment. And you can hold on to those. So I went home and I wrote down a list of these Emmanuel moments and I keep them in my heart. And anytime that something is coming against me, opposition is coming, I can remember them, right? I have a weapon, a defense against what the enemy is saying to me because I remember what the Lord has done in my life and the provision that he has spoken over me so that I can find the will to continue the work. And then we have to be prepared that a good defense might mean a slower offense. So Nehemiah divided up his men. He gave spears to half of them. He had half of them continue the work. The laborers were doing work with one hand and had a weapon in the other. Do you think that? sped up the work or slowed it down, right? It slowed it down. But Nehemiah knew that it, they did not have a plan to defend themselves. They would never complete the work to begin with. So he set this up so that they would have a way to defend themselves. How do we learn how to defend against the enemy? What is our defense? How do we do this? Ephesians 6, 11 through 18 tells us to put on the full armor of God, to arm ourselves against the scheme of the enemy, which is not a flesh and blood like Nehemiah was dealing with, but the powers and principalities of darkness. And this passage says to stand firm with a belt of truth around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and to have your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith to protect against the evil one and to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the Lord. That sounds like a lot of work to me. Like to become fully righteous, to know scripture, to be ready with peace at any moment. Those are all things that we have to work to accomplish. We have to work to build the armor that will protect us against the defense, to defend against the enemy. It's not easy. It takes time. But if we do not equip ourselves, we'll never complete the work. And then we have to include a community in our plan for defense. Nehemiah said, whenever the trumpet sounds, go to that place so that we can all defend against the enemy together. So what does that mean for us? We have to know when the trumpet is sounding in each other's lives. We have to be close enough to be able to sound the trumpet for each other. We have to know when somebody else needs that defense because we're stronger together and we can defend against the enemy better in community. Now, Nehemiah knew that all of this planning, all this preparation, this plan for defense would help 
to stop the opposition that was coming against the wall, help them do the good work. But he also knew that a plan for defense wasn't going to keep the opposition from coming. It was just gonna help them complete the work. Because this is the ultimate truth that the enemy does not want you to know. And it brings me to my sixth and final point. While the enemy uses opposition to stop the work, the father turns opposition into the greater work. While the enemy uses opposition to stop the work, the father turns opposition into the greater work. Let's go back to verse three when Sam Bala asks, can they turn these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? And you know what is so ironic about what Sam Ballot says here? Is the very sarcastic comment that he is using against them, can they turn these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble, is the very thing, the very thing the enemy has already destroyed is what they're going to use to rebuild into something more beautiful. Romans 5, 1, 5, 1 through 5 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Bible is full of stories of transformation, of the healing work that God does. Abraham and Sarah weren't able to have a baby, but God told Sarah that she would be the mother of many nations, and he gave her a baby at the age of 90. Esther, okay, let's be honest about Esther really quick. Like, we all try to pretty that story up a lot, right? Like, aw, Esther was in like this kind of beauty pageant, and the king picked her, like we turned it into like this rom-com. It was not a rom-com. Like, Esther was forced into marriage to leave her people, marry someone who was not uh, someone who was not part of her people and was forced to marry him and like become part of the king's harem. Like that's not a pretty story, right? But God used her to bring salvation to his people. Moses, out of his passion, killed someone. Like out of his passion for his people, he murdered someone. But God used that passion to fuel bringing his people out of slavery. But God is at the cornerstone of all of our stories of transformation when he comes in and brings hope and healing into places where we never thought that that could happen. Remember earlier I read John 16, where it says, in this world, you will have trouble. That verse continues. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus also had a kingdom dream. You know what it was? to die at the hands of those who opposed him so that we could have life, so that we could experience healing and transformation. Jesus went through death to overcome this opposition that the enemy is bringing against us. And we get to have hope because we know that Jesus already did it. We get to take heart. He already overcame it. Hebrews 12, one through three says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So for the joy set before him, 
Jesus endured the cross because he knew that there was life and healing and transformation on the other side of opposition and death. And he did that for us. He knew that his body had to be broken like the burnt stones around the wall of Jerusalem so that something more beautiful could be built from what he did for us. And what does that mean for us today? It means that we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are now the temple of God. We are the walls that provide a place for community to thrive. We get to bring the spirit of the Lord out into the world and bring that healing and that transformation. So we have to decide, what are we gonna do with that truth? That we are the ones who carry the presence of God now. So I have a couple of questions for you to think through as we close our time together this morning. What brokenness in your life is the enemy telling you cannot be rebuilt? What lies are you believing about yourself and about God? And what truth needs to be spoken over those lies? What do you need to lament in this season? Ask God what transformation and healing he has for you in the midst of opposition. So this time we're gonna enter into a time of response. We're gonna have our prayer team back there behind the picnic tables ready to pray for you. We're going to um, take communion together. And I really want us today, in, in the light of that spirit of being stronger when we defend together, I really want us to take communion together this morning. So if you don't have communion, raise your hand. Someone from our hospitality team will bring it to you. We're just gonna wait just a second before we take it so that we make sure everybody has some. And while we take communion together, I want you to remember that, that Jesus's body was broken for you so that life and healing and transformation can be brought to the rest of the world. Such a beautiful thing for us to remember together. So we come together and take communion in defense against opposition together. So I'm just gonna pray for us to close out. Father, I just thank you for this time that you have given us just this beautiful time that we get to be together, that we get to learn the better word that you have spoken over our lives, this truth of healing and transformation that's available for us today, Father. I just thank you for your body that was broken for us so that we can experience this new life with you. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and open up our communion and take it together. And let's experience the, the life and the healing and the transformation that the Father has for us today.